This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Yes! Thank you everybody for tuning in to the latest episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky. With me, as always, Brian Calm. So Elon, I don't know if you always do the same arm waving and facial expressions when you're doing the yes off camera. I don't know how much of that you added for the camera, but I really appreciate the whole package only the people here live with us right now really can feel the full effect of that yes but i'm sure just the audio gets the point across for the rest of us <laughs> okay well yes just to set the stage for people listening after the fact we are live right now on blab we're going to release the show after it's done by the way i want to get into all of our content right away big news drew Doughty brian just did win the norris trophy oh my you God. were joking <laughs> He, we were joking off the air about how, like, we're going to have to talk about Dowdy winning because we knew, of course, Carlson would win. Looks like Dowdy wins. Okay, let's get to that in a little bit. Brian, you can think about your take right now. I want to mention we are presented by DauberHockey.com, the best fantasy hockey website out there. It's been so fun. Like, finally, stuff is happening, right? Finally, we get some signings, a couple of trades. We're going to talk about it all. And Dauber's been right there. You go to that site, you get the fantasy hockey impact. They tell you which players they think are this helps, this hurts. They give the, if it's a smart idea, a bad idea. It's like a very well done site. Articles are always there. It's, it's the resource to go to, even in the offseason. Obviously, this podcast will give you our takes. But for the instant, uh, you know, answers to things, you got to go to DauberHockey.com. Yeah, big days coming up, and as always, Dauber Hockey is super quick with the fantasy impact, not only on the players directly involved, but the players indirectly involved. So players on the teams where a new player has either been signed or the team that a player was traded away from, uh, you'll see a lot. And also, Elon, this would be a great time to make a mention of Dauber prospects, especially in draft season. If you want to find out about your favorite prospect or keep up with the draft uh head over there and i'm not just saying this like this is beyond the the general plug i actually want to um say this is a really legitimate resource for keeping up uh, with all the names that are going onto the draft board on draft day yeah we're gonna have one name that we're gonna bring up a little later in the show someone that's not eligible for the draft so that's a little hint for you guys but we'll get to him in a bit i want to start with i guess we have to start with the first headline let's get it out of the way the the season is finally over the penguins win the stanley cup what a ride it was for them the whole way through as we were doing our summer series of the podcast we were talking about right uh matt murray and is he gonna stay the goalie he ended up yeah 
Matt Murray ended up playing all the games except for that one game, I guess, where they tried to bring him in for game six against Tampa Bay. He didn't, and uh, Marc-Andre Fleury came in, didn't win. So they brought Murray back in and he ended up winning the cup. What a playoffs in the end, right? He had in 21 games a 925 save percentage, 15 wins, only four losses. Well, and two overtime losses, so six losses. Like, it's obviously, we've already talked about it a lot, so I guess we don't need to get too deep into it. But the debate is on, right? For like, how high do you draft Matt Murray? next year but I guess also you know why even debate it right now because we'll have to see what Pittsburgh does with Marc-Andre Fleury I've seen rumors that maybe Calgary is interested in trading a pick for Fleury or that's maybe what Pittsburgh is asking like a, a first round pick so it'll be interesting to see right now do you have any final takes on this goalie controversy before we just wait until something happens with Fleury and Dushmore Goaliesborg later in the summer not really no I think all this does is make Fleury uh definitely in play over the offseason, lots of trade talk around him already, more than there would have been had Murray flamed out at some point and Flurry had taken the reins. So I think that's all that matters to me right now is, well, if Flurry goes to another team, we'll consider his effect there. Uh, but I'm not about to make my call on Flurry and Murray being on the same team and what that means for their draft positions. I'm not ready to dedicate that brain power to that situation until it's actually real. Yeah, I would say if Flurry stays right now, I'm not going to like overreact. I'm still going to think of it as like a 50-50 type thing. Ante Kopitar just won the Selkie Trophy. But I have a feeling maybe they don't need to keep Flurry now, especially with this upcoming expansion, which we'll talk about in a bit. But at the end of this year, all these te- all the teams in the NHL are going to have to choose which people to protect, and they're only going to be able to protect one goalie in most situations. We'll break that whole thing down. Maybe this week, maybe another week, maybe next year when it actually happens. But that is something that might... Uh, force the Penguins' hand, and they might end up trading Marc-Andre Fleury while they can. Okay, another thing about the playoffs I wanted to talk about, to, you know, to sort of summarize, first of all, by the way, congratulations to Patty, who won our playoff pool, and she didn't only win, she destroyed it. 247 points, and second place at 224, and everyone else is really close together. So, big shout-out to Patty. Congratulations. Free year of patronage. And then I think second place gets something. We'll have to figure out what that is. But yeah, congratulations to her. But I also wanted to bring up now... Sidney Crosby wins the Conn Smythe Trophy. A lot of people thought that maybe he didn't deserve it, but I mean, he was the leader of the team, and I don't want to get into all these intangibles. In terms of points, in terms of fantasy value, Phil Kessel had more points than him. Though if you look at the leaders, the playoff point leaders, it it was all stacked with sharks, right? Couture, Burns, Pavelski were the top three. Couture, 30 points. Insane. We talked about him last time. Phil Kessel at 22 points. Crosby, very respectable, though. 19 points in 24 games. So that wraps up a bow on Sidney Crosby's season, where he started so weak ended so so strong and Brian like where would you now draft Crosby next year like assuming let's say a points only league just to keep things simple no position eligibility to worry about do you think he's the guy that you would take first as the front runner that will probably win the scoring title assuming he doesn't get injured or has his weak start to the season even though he ended strong has that still lingered with you and has that shaken him away from like that number one place no, that is absolutely not lingered with me. Same as last year for Sidney Crosby. In fact, maybe even better, although, you know, we didn't know just how bad things were going to be in the system that their former coach, who started last season, wanted them to play. Elon, it's funny, like we were talking just the other day, you and I, when I came by Toronto, about the value of in-season trading and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. And I made the point that, you know, you have people who use trades to sort of find players who are currently undervalued, who they believe will pull out of it, 
And one of those names that I brought up as an example was, you know, players, uh, fantasy owners who either traded or acquired Sidney Crosby. Everybody felt like they were taking a risk by doing it. And, uh, well, it was a really good move for anyone yeah. who acquired Sidney Crosby. I don't think I ever got to the point of recommending someone trade him, but I definitely would have happily acquired him from somebody who had lost patience and was willing to sell for pennies on the dollar or even half dollars on the dollar for Sidney Crosby. Uh, so uh, his his value to me is unchanged from previous years. I mean, you have extra guys to consider in that top tier. We've detailed some of them in weeks past since the season ended. Connor McDavid, just for example, you know, do you want him before Crosby or not? Um, I have a question for you, Elon. Do you take him after Carlson again next year? Okay, so yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, in the Cupful, I had the chance to draft Sidney Crosby and I drafted Carlson. Of course, it's a little different because I just gave you an easy scenario of like a points only. Like in the Cupful, first of all, defense is more scarce, as we know, than a center. Also, we counted blocks, so Carlson gave me extra value there. I think I'd stick with Carlson, but I agree with you that in terms of points, like Crosby... Like, should be up there. And you know what? Just to put everything into context, Connor McDavid's a big unknown. Like, who knows how high he could be? It seems like a lot of people, like, and maybe myself included, I'm going to have to think about it over the summer. I could see him winning the Art Ross next year if he plays the full season. But just for some other context, Patrick Kane, who did win the Art Ross, he had 106 points in 82 games. So obviously amazing. Sidney Crosby, as we know, only 85 points in 80 games. But if you just look at the post-All-Star break, 44 points in his last 33 games which is a 109-point pace. So his pace after the All-Star break it was, it was higher than Patrick Kane's uh, pace for the season. Of course, maybe if we were to take Patrick Kane's pace uh, before the All-Star break, maybe that would have been higher because he did slow down a little bit. It was all just to say, if we throw away the bad start with the other coach, I think that Crosby definitely just had another amazing Sidney Crosby season. There's no reason to think he can't do it again next year. And then, Brian... I guess before we move on from the playoffs, move into some of these off-season moves. Do you have any other final takes just about the Penguins and their win and what that means? No, I think, well, okay, yes, I'll come up with one for the sake of it. Uh, Chris Letang was drafted on average 10th amongst D-men in ESPN leagues last year, so people were choosing nine defensemen before him. I think maybe that rises. The only thing stopping it from rising was probably the same thing as last year, which is all the concern that's constantly around him regarding injuries. Uh, everyone else, I think you can expect to be about the same. Crosby, Malkin, you know I'm still high on Kessel. I think he's going to have a good season. The guys I wouldn't get overly excited about are names like Rust, Shiri, Benino. Uh, those guys definitely made some name for themselves over the playoffs. But over an 82-game season... I don't know that they'll be able to keep up fantasy relevant. In fact, I'm quite confident that they won't be able to keep up fantasy relevant production the whole way through. And their fates are going to largely be determined by who they play with. Benino is probably the best of the group, especially if the HBK line stays together in some iteration. But over the season, you expect some shuffling. And I don't know that Benino is worth drafting any more than, say, a guy like Alex Kalorn has been worth drafting over the last couple years. I'll give you another couple takeaways, because actually I did think about this for a few minutes before we started recording. Uh, Kunitz, uh, Chris Kunitz, he averaged half a point per game in the playoffs. Last year he was a question mark going into drafts, and now this year I feel like it's more like a trailing off ellipses, like Chris Kunitz. I'm not going to take him. <laughs> uh, it's Everybody wondered if he could still be a wingman for Crosby on the top line. 
and maybe he can occasionally, um, but I don't know that he carries that same upside as he used to just by virtue of being Crosby's winger. On the other hand, you have a guy like Patrick Hornqvist who did prove himself after really struggling for the first large chunk of the season and had a lot of people doubting him who were really excited about him moving from Nashville to Pittsburgh. Uh, He proved himself in the playoffs as being a really incredible contributor. I mean, you watched him play, and he was all over the ice all the time. Seems like a real pesky guy to play against. Uh, Someone I really enjoyed watching. So him, uh, I think Hornquist establishes himself as being someone worth grabbing, and maybe even Carl Hagelin to an extent in deeper rounds, too. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. You've for a while now you've loved Haglin, but you're saying like you know sort of shying away from Nick Benino. I see them almost as like the same. If they play with Kessel, they'll be good. And otherwise, and hey, Nick Benino, by the way, you know eighth in the end in, in NHL playoff scoring, 18 points in 24 games. He was third on the Penguins after Kessel and Crosby. So an amazing class for Benino. But I agree with you. It depends who he plays with. I think at the same in the same uh, line, like it's the same with Kunitz. If he plays with Crosby, I'd probably pick him up as a free agent, but I'm not rushing to draft him because he could lose that spot, especially if Connor Sheary, who you also mentioned, if he sort of earns his role on the top six like he was playing in the playoffs. But okay, let's move on now from the playoffs, move officially into the offseason, and finally we have some moves to talk about, some new things. I would say the biggest news has come out of Anaheim. A lot of stuff has happened there. First of all, they hired a new coach. Randy Carlyle, Brian's favorite, the former coach of the Leafs, and now he is back with Anaheim. And, the, you know, they signed Carlyle, and I'll ask you about the fantasy impact of him being signed and hired, but maybe in the context of them trading away Frederick Anderson to the Toronto Maple Leafs for the 30th overall pick, and another pick, and now, like, the Leafs signed Anderson, so he's locked in. I want to focus on Anaheim first, though. On that day, because every day we're doing our rankings of players for next year, we're voting every day on the next player on the patron-only Facebook group. And that day that Anderson got traded, all of a sudden everyone switched their vote. I'm voting for Gibson. I want Gibson. Because now Gibson finally is supposedly, at least we hope, the entrenched number one goalie on a really good team, Anaheim. So now that Gibson is the overall number one goalie, like how big of a deal is this for Gibson? Like How high does he launch himself as an elite fantasy goalie, like he's on a good team, he had a really good year last season, but at the same time, now the coach is Randy Carlisle, who I know a lot of people are saying that's not a good thing, but, you know, Gibson, 920 save percentage last year, in 40 games played, 21 wins, probably you could add another 20 games to that, like what's his upside for you? Yeah, so add playing time for John Gibson, although there was a report that said maybe the Ducks might still add another goalie who can handle like a good 30 games of work, which means that we're not expecting to see Gibson all of a sudden become a workhorse. Some might argue that they might already have that in Anton Kudobin, although Kudobin certainly didn't do anything to deserve that reputation with his play last season or the year before, as a matter of fact. So yeah, the, the more playing time for Gibson is good, but playing for Randy Carlyle could not be a great thing. The effects of Randy Carlisle on the teams he's coached have been very well documented, you know, looking at how the Ducks improved after Carlisle left, and then how the Leafs improved after Carlisle left, <laughs> and also how the Leafs went, wait, uh, what's the opposite, worsened, worsened under Carlisle. Um, scoring chances, four percentage dropped, Corsi, four percentage dropped. Mind you, those are all percentages, so those are all like shares of total events. 
there's not a whole lot there's not a whole lot out there for the pace. So, you know, how many shot attempts exactly were Carlisle's teams getting? But the point is is that, you know, if you don't have the puck enough, then you're not going to be able to take shots enough. And uh, I'm not I'm not overly optimistic. I feel like this sort of had to be addressed in any interview that Carlisle had for this job. But again, this is a team that fired Bruce Boudreau after a first round exit and a stellar season and one where he showed his ability to coach a team out of, you know, a huge funk. So I don't know that I have a ton of faith in the Anaheim front office making a lot of great decisions, which would be cause for concern for John Gibson if he is thrown into the fire. Uh, The good news for the Ducks is that they do have a relatively stable decor, which Toronto didn't really have during Carlisle's years. Uh, So that's a good start for Gibson. I don't think, it's not like I expect Gibson to be as bad as, say, I'm trying to think of who the goalies were during the Carlisle era in Toronto. Bernier last year. Yeah, but, well, Bernier last year was not playing under Randy Carlisle. Okay, well, Reimer... At some point, I'm sure. At some point, Reimer. I'd love to say Raycroft and Toscala, but I, I feel like I'm missing a Leafs goalie in there. If anybody in the chat wants to pipe in, feel free. Um, anyway, the the beginning of last year was so bad for the Ducks. The thing with Carlisle is that even if it doesn't work out that great, I doubt the beginning of this year could be much worse than it was last year. Um, I think the effects on the rest of the players, I'm not sure how much we'll see from them in terms of dropping in ability to score points, at least significantly. But Gibson is probably the duck I'm most worried about with Randy Carlisle coming into the picture. So you don't, you wouldn't be comfortable now taking him as like your number one goalie on your fantasy team next year? Um, it's a tough one because Anaheim is still a good team. I think I'd be somewhat comfortable, but I'd want to get a pretty solid number two guy, and I don't mean NHL number two, I mean fantasy number two guy for my team, just in case. Like, I feel like Gibson is going to get minutes, and in some cases that's good enough. It's just a matter of how the quality of his play will be in those minutes. Okay, so here's here's my take. I think that I'm pretty comfortable having Gibson. Like, if I, like last year when I took Gibson when Anderson was injured... Like, he was, like, an amazing starting goalie to have, like, really reliable. And I know now the new coach. But, like, how bad? I don't know. Maybe I'm being naive. Like, how, like I mean, they hired him not to lose, not to suck. So they'll have him. Hopefully he'll have good assistance. Hope, and, you know, if he does really badly, they could fire him. So, I don't know. I'm just saying I'm not going to... I know Ian in the chat is saying Carlisle is really bad. So, yeah. I don't know. I'm just not going to not take Gibson. Like, we'll get to more goalies, Borg, and see. But I feel like he's a good goalie. Like, he's now played two full seasons. He has a 920 overall for his career, which is obviously really good for his save percentage. Like, he's on a good team, and he's a good goalie. That's the kind of guy that you want in fantasy. That's so hard to get, especially if he's an entrenched number one. So assuming they don't bring in, like, another possible contender, like if they bring in Reimer or something, then obviously we have to reconsider. But I'm pretty excited for Gibson. And then on the other side of the coin, you have Frederick Anderson, who goes to the Leafs, and the Leafs still have Jonathan Bernier. So I guess the two questions for you, Brian, is first of all, is this good for Anderson? Like, would you ra- was he better off being a 50-50 guy in Anaheim versus, uh, like, I guess I'd assume a number one guy in Toronto, the money they gave him makes him seem like a number one, even though I would have thought Bernier would maybe challenge. Like, in general, yeah, so is and- what do you think about Anderson in Toronto? Do you think he could be a decent goalie to have in fantasy that you'd be willing to draft? And also, is Bernier basically done, like, not draftable? 
So I'm going to just rewind for a second, and I might ask you to remind me of those questions because just the thing you said is sticking in my mind that Gibson has played two full NHL seasons. Elon, he's made... (laughs) You said two full NHL seasons. He's made about 66 appearances in the NHL in his life. 62 of those have been starts. He was playing in San Diego last year and the year before. Uh, So I, I wouldn't say two full seasons. I'd say he's got essentially as many games as you'd expect a starter to have, like a workhorse starter to have over one season, or a tandem guy to have over a season and a half, which is essentially um, how much John Gibson has played. Uh, so he's got a 920 in that time, which is respectable, and you know he's got the pedigree behind him too. I'm still optimistic about him. I'm just not as optimistic about his numbers for sure being good as I would have had Bruce Boudreaux stayed behind the bench. Okay, so let me ask you, before you get to now Anderson, now I actually have a quick one-for-one for, one for you. Who would you rather have for next year, assuming Flurry gets traded from the Penguins, Matt Murray or John Gibson? Matt Murray. Oh, there you go, because he's played even less. But I guess he's on a better team, you think, or a better coached team. I don't know, because Gibson has, like, normally the Brian Com mantra, as I've come to learn it, is go with the guy who's proven he could do it for longer. Gibson has played at least a full season's worth as a starting goalie, like you say, as opposed to Murray, who really just had a cup of coffee in the regular season before dominating in the playoffs. But okay, anyways, you say Murray? I don't necessarily disagree. I'm really excited to see how things shake out, like we said before, and then we'll discuss in Schmorgoliesborg when we have to rank these guys. All right, Toronto Maple Leafs, Anderson, Bernier, give us your take. Yeah, Jonathan Bernier is not long for the Toronto Maple Leafs, not long for a starter role or even, I don't I don't even feel like a tandem guy. Like, maybe he can spell Frederick Anderson if things aren't working out, but seeing how the Leafs just... So soldiered on when they had Bernier doing terribly and Garrett Sparks doing terribly. I don't think they're going to blink if Anderson comes in and plays terribly, especially because they've just committed to him for five years, and that's the current regime committing to him. That's a regime that you expect to be around for the duration of those five years, who seem to have a sound plan. So in terms of who's going to get starts in Toronto this year, I don't think there's any question that Anderson is going to be the guy. The only situation I could see is maybe if he's really struggling, they take him out, they work on some stuff in his game, and get him back in there. Maybe, you know, a lot of people might say the first year under the Toronto media spotlight can be very difficult. Maybe they're going to want to shield him from that. I don't know how much shielding he's going to need. I think he's going to do okay. I mean, he's a guy who's put up a reasonably average save percentage over his career so far. If you look at the last three seasons for goalies who have played about as much as him, he ranks or a lot more. Uh, He's ranked 17th out of 31 goalies in even strength save percentage. So again, pretty much in the middle. And if you look at the other key goaltending metrics, uh, high danger save percentage, low danger save percentage, Uh, He's usually average, sometimes a smidge above, sometimes a smidge below. In the biggest metric these days, though, which is adjusted goals saved above average per 60 minutes, he is just above league average, so at least he's on the right side of that. Overall, I wouldn't say that he's definitely going to shine in the role of a starter. I don't think he's proven himself as a surefire starter, but I think he's earned a shot at being one. And if he can give Leafs average goaltender, if he can give the Leafs average goaltending, I, I think that would probably be enough for the moment. I wouldn't set my expectations much higher for him since, you know, he's had spells where he's done way above average, but overall, about average. And I also wouldn't underestimate the Leafs as a team to help him get 
to that average save percentage. They have some good pieces on the blue line, plus great coaching. They've shown that they can really adapt to the roster that they have, and I think they're starting to commit themselves to winning. They did their tank. They're getting Austin Matthews, probably, or Patrick Lane, and now it's time to start building that winning culture in hockey speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, things are looking good for the Leafs. We talked about that on a previous episode, and I know Ryan here in the chat would call me a traitor, but, uh, like, the Leafs are looking good. I, like, I said that I was actually more optimistic about the Leafs than the Sens, which was a controversial thing to say, but hey, I'm wearing my Sens hat here. Maybe I'll have to buy a Leafs hat at some point. But yeah, I mean, they are going to have Matthews, Austin Matthews, and, like, we've already talked about, you know, Nylander and, like, all the other exciting prospects. Like you said, an interesting defense. Now they have a goalie who I agree, like, he's not a world beater, but he's proven himself to be a good, solid goalie. That like on fantasy, I was never like afraid to play Frederick Anderson, worrying about my save percentage. Of course, he was on Anaheim. We'll see how that goes with Toronto, but he's good enough for sure, to, especially considering who was available. Plus, uh, who knows what they'll do in the off season in terms of free agency? You know, a lot of people are still talking about Steven Stamkos. Maybe I guess we'll have to wait and find out if they were to get him. You know, all of a sudden, and I don't want to speculate too much, but obviously that would make them a team that we'd expect to be able to get a few more wins, and that helps Anderson. So he's definitely a guy I'd watch in my draft, especially if you're in a league that counts saves. You always could rely on a Toronto Maple Leafs goalie to have a lot of pucks flung his way, and if he could put up an average save percentage, and even if he doesn't get the win, then, you know, he'll do something. I see you're shrugging your shoulders. You're thinking maybe they'll have better defense this year. Maybe he won't have as many shots against. Yeah, maybe that's changing. We're going to have to wait and see how committed they are to really going for it. Like, I feel like they still won't mind finishing in the bottom third of the league and, like, working through and just toughing out whatever problems they face Instead, just trying to do things, you know, the right way and the way they want to do it when they are winning, whatever, all that talk. Uh, But I don't know that it's a given anymore that your Toronto Maple Leafs goaltender is going to get shelled and do poorly. I'm really interested to see now that they, I mean, they had James Reimer before and he succeeded briefly last season uh, in that environment. I feel like Anderson is another guy who could. It also could totally go south. Like Anderson, like I said, he's, he's right on the precipice sort of, of being somebody who can be a starter and who, well, at least hasn't shown himself to be able to handle that role yet. So five years is a big commitment for a guy like that, especially at the money they're paying him. But um, I'm, I'm really interested to see. I'm not going with, and I'm sort of ditching my preconceptions from last season, previous seasons going into this one. We'll see how things look in training camp. That sounds good. And okay, a couple quick questions from Corey here. First of all, he asks... Uh, where does Anderson rank next year for fantasy high-end number two? So here's my question to you, Brian. Let's say you end your draft and you have John Gibson and Frederick Anderson as your top two goalies. How, how comfortable are you in your goaltending for next year in fantasy? You said that you'd be happy with Gibson, but you'd want a solid number two. Would that, would that do it for you? That would do it for me. Two goalies who I expect to perform about average and see their fair share of starts. And I imagine you could get both for a reasonable price in your draft, although I wonder if Gibson's going to go higher than I'm prepared to draft him. Uh, that's a tandem that I would be okay with, yeah. Oh, there you go. So that's a pretty good, uh, I think, that, that's a pretty good recommendation for Anderson, that you'd, you'd be happy to have him as your number two. Uh, also, Corey asked, what beer is it tonight? I'm drinking 100th Meridian, a beer that Brian left in my fridge when he visited me last weekend. So thank you, Brian. Very nice to give me some beer. Uh, okay, 
Let's move on. Oh, no, we're still on Anaheim because I, they did more. Anaheim's been busy. They also signed Sammy Vatnin to a four-year contract. And this is a guy that a lot of us thought might be on the move in the summer just because they have so much def- so much defensive depth. They have Lindholm, of course, Fowler. Shea Theodore came in a bit last season and, and made a big impact in his short time when he was on the top power play. So now... They sign Vatnin, and obviously we don't know what this means for the other defensemen. We don't know if maybe that's a sign that maybe Fowler will get traded. Everyone's hoping, especially the Oilers fans, are hoping one of these defensemen will go to Edmonton. Though also people are concerned that Edmonton's going to trade like one of their amazing scorers in order to get someone like Eberle for Fowler or something crazy like that. But anyway, just looking at Anaheim's defensemen now, I'm just curious to know, to get your sense, last year you actually had a good interview on the podcast. I think it's still relevant. You can go back and listen to it. You interviewed Corey Pronman, the prospects es- expert, and he said that he thought Hampus Lindholm was the best defenseman on Anaheim for like long term. If you had to choose right now between Vatnin and Lindholm and I guess Fowler, like who would you want if you could have your choice of any Anaheim defenseman for next season? I'm going to take Fowler out of the conversation just because I think it complicates things a little bit. He's a little older, I think expected to be in a bit more of a steadyish role. And when you're talking about Sammy Vatnin and Hempis Lindholm, you're really looking at upside. You're looking at two guys who have shown a lot of capabilities offensively and defensively in the two years that they have both been on the Ducks. Um, They played essentially the same amount of games in their careers. uh, Although Vatnin did miss a bunch of games due to injury and Hempis Lindholm hasn't really. The big difference in their production to date is that Vatnin is getting the power play time. But if you take the power play time out of the equation, you have two guys who are relatively even. Neither of them set the world on fire in terms of fantasy production, relatively speaking. I should qualify because because they are good. I'd be really happy with them on my team, but they're not top 20 guys in you know most of the scoring metrics that we look at, uh, that we look to get from defensemen, but... In the ones that I'm looking at quickly, which are shots per 60 minutes and points per 60 minutes, Lindholm beats out Vatanen in both those cases over the last two years. So I'd be really interested to see if Lindholm does end up in an- with another team, uh, because that was the-, the rumor coming out of last season as well. The Ducks are going to have to choose. Vatanen or Lindholm, which one do they want? The other one is going to be an outstanding trade chip. And uh, I think Lindholm can play, can be like your first power play quarterback if he's traded to a team that needs one and can also handle his defensive responsibilities pretty well at the same time. Okay, so it's interesting because if you look at the numbers, right, like just from last season, Lindholm had 28 points in 80 games. Sammy Vatnin had 38 points in 71 games. So we're talking a 45-point pace versus a 28-point pace, like completely different. But of course, you know, that's... Sorry, yeah, you're going to say because he had more ice time and he had the power play. He had the power play time. Vatnin had 20, uh, sorry, 17 points on the power play last season in 67 games. Lindholm had six. And it's not because Vatnin was just more successful on the power play. He had the lion's share of power play time with the better power play unit. So it sounds like, because I'm not asking you necessarily, like, what should Anaheim do? Like, I don't really care about that. I'm talking about me drafting my fantasy team. Like, are you, it sounds kind of like you're saying that Vatnin's 45-point pace, that's sort of like his ceiling because Lindholm's going to eventually chip away at that. He's going to go down in time and his numbers will decrease. Like, do you see 45 points as, like, the most you can expect from Sammy Vatnin and and even, even less because you think Lindholm's going to take his spot eventually? I don't think Lindholm's going to take his spot eventually. In fact, I expect Lindholm to be on another team when the season starts. Although that might be a really ill-informed speculative thought. Uh, as long as they're on the same team, 
I take Vatnin before Lindholm because Vatnin is getting the power play time. That settles it for me. And I'm also not worried about Lindholm taking more and more of the power play time. Like I said, they're essentially at the same point in their careers. They've both played two years. Vatnin's a few years older, but I feel like that might work in his favor in terms of how Anaheim wants to use him. They've just committed to him. He's going to be their guy. I don't expect him to lose any ground to Lindholm in terms of power play production. Although with a new coach, I guess that could be up in the (laughs) air. So if they're on different teams, however, uh, then I'd consider potentially taking Lindholm before Vatanen, depending on where Lindholm lands. Well, of course. But you're saying if they stay on the same team for next year, you'd go Vatanen. And just really quickly, like, do you think 45 points is like a ceiling? Or do you think there's more you can expect from Vatanen if he ends up as that top power play defenseman on Anaheim? It's a good question. I, I wish I could give you a better answer than... I th- honestly, I feel like 45 is about right. I feel like it's fair to expect like 45 plus 5 before you expect 45 minus 5. Okay. I-, I, wish, I-, I wish I could tell you more. I'd like to see a little bit more from him. And by the way, I-, I erred before talking about his power play production. He had 19 power play points last season and Lindholm had 15. It was the previous seasons that I was referencing as having been the most recent. So my bad. That's so it was right. actually, it was, a, it was a lot closer last season than I made it seem, but the season before there was still a, a wide gulf between them. And of course it also depends on your categories. Like, an interesting thing with Vatanen is he seems to be going up in shots every year. Like, he was uh, around two shots a game this year, as opposed to closer to 1.5 or I guess 1.6 last year. So we'll see if Vatanen can maybe improve. Okay, there we go. That's our Ducks talk. We have Bobby here. He's locking in Sammy Vatanen, 50 points. So... <laughs> That, uh, we'll see if he can do it. It's, it's possible if he's... Because also don't forget that Vatanen was injured a lot last year. So anyway, but that, his pace was 45. He didn't have 45 points. Okay, let's move on to another team that did some things. Uh, let's talk about the Carolina Hurricanes. The two main things they did are they made a trade with Chicago in which they picked up a bad contract in Brian Bickle, but to get Toivo Teravainen. So, and they also gave up some picks, but the, the big news, obviously, is Toivo Teravainen becomes a Carolina Hurricane. Teravainen is a guy who we were really excited about, like, I guess two seasons ago when he was brought up from the minors. Then we thought that he might have a good chance on Chicago to do something last year. We thought maybe he'd have a chance in the top six. He ended up only with 35 points in 78 games, which actually isn't, like, so, so bad considering his minutes. Like, he was only getting around 15 minutes a game. But uh, now he goes to Carolina, where we assume he's going to get a top six role. Like, uh, where... I assume you're going to agree, at least, that this is good for Toivo Teravainen, moving away from Chicago and going to Carolina, where he has a more opportunity to be a top six guy? I'm going to answer that question, Elon, in just a moment. But before I do... Is there something you'd like to bring up? Right, yes. I Sorry, I forgot to mention that if you, li- you want to go see all these new players in all of their new locations, if you want to go see Toivo Teravainen in a Carolina Hur- Hurricanes jersey, you'd have to buy tickets to go to the game if you want to see it live, but it's annoying because all these places are so hard to find tickets. Oh my god, I'm like trying to find a ticket on ticket sites, and I never know like what's good value, and are there going to be extra fees or something at checkout, but not with SeatGeek! Our sponsor, SeatGeek, a a great site to go to look for tickets because they give you everything. They show you the value of the tickets. You could subscribe for tickets that you want to get notified when the price is going to go down. And best of all, you don't have any hidden fees at checkout. What you see is what you get at SeatGeek. And we even have a special offer for Keeping Carlson listeners, do we not? Yes, even better than all the fees being included in that price you see 
you're going to save $20 on that total price if you download the app and then I think you have to click the me tab on the button or my account, enter the promo code KEEPING in all capital letters, that's K-E-E-P-I-N-G, and you will receive a $20 rebate on your first ticket purchase with SeatGeek. <laughs> yeah, Corey just wrote wow in the chat room. He's so excited <laughs> about how he's going to be able to get $20 off his next SeatGeek purchase or his first SeatGeek purchase. You enter the offer code KEEPING. And, you know, this isn't a celebrity gossip podcast. This is a fancy hockey podcast. I think you guys are smart enough. You're going to figure out where to input that offer code. It's, it's a nice site. It's a good app. You'll figure it out. Check it out. SeatGeek. Support them. Support the show. It's all great. Brian. I want to talk about Toivo Teravainen on the Carolina Hurricanes. I want to hear you say Toivo Teravainen's name over and over. Is it Tevu? Tevo? What? I always Toivo? say to- I always say Toivo. Tevo. I always have said Toivo. Is that not how yeah. you say it? I feel like we're just like blue skying a Finnish pronunciation of T E U V O. One of these <laughs> days I'll really look it up. Yeah, look it up. I'm going to go with Toivo Teravainen for now because it's fun to say. You look at Carolina's, you know, top forwards and you see like Jordan Stahl's probably going to be there, Elias Lindholm, Victor Rask, Jeff Skinner. And now you throw it, I guess Joachim Nordstrom was there and then Andre Nestor. So I guess someone gets bumped. Maybe we could talk about who this hurts. But first of all, do you think that Toivo is going to have a sure top six role? Or do you think that's still even up in the air? Like, who, how good is this guy? Like, he had so much hype about being a blue chip prospect coming to the Hawks. And he didn't really do enough, like I said, to become fantasy relevant for most of the season. What's your take right now on him going to Carolina? I would say Mr. Teravainen is a great pull for the Carolina Hurricanes. It wasn't quite the right situation at the start of last year for him in Chicago. And Joel Quenville tended to say as much. He was somebody I followed really closely through the year to see, you know, if he would get another chance after his first couple spins in the Chicago top six didn't go so well. And Chicago never really had a bad word to say about him. They said he worked hard. They said he did what he was asked, even though things didn't play out exactly the way either party expected, uh, it, it still seemed like a, a positive season and a real step forward. And that's all stuff you heard before we knew that his name was at all on the trade block, which is important. Some teams really just start pumping their guy up when they're looking to sell. But Toivo Teravainen has steadily, consistently gotten a high praise from everybody in the Chicago organization. I think he's a top six for sure. Remember, former first-round draft pick. I think he was picked 18th overall. And that doesn't necessarily determine your fate, but it's a good thing to have on your resume. I think he's probably going to play a very large part, or how large a part can you play, in what is going to be a pretty evenly distributed top six in Carolina. You've got Stahl, Teravainen, Lindholm, Victor Rask, Jeff Skinner, and then I guess Joachim Nordstrom or Andre Nastrasil will round those guys out. And I feel like a few of those guys can handle dual positions as well. So there might be a lot of mixing and matching in Carolina at the start of the season, but I firmly expect Teravainen to be playing a key role. Remember, Eric Stahl is gone. There's a big hole at the top of that lineup for somebody to step in and do the heavy lifting, play the most minutes, play in different situations, and maybe you'd think Jordan Stahl would be the de facto choice if he's still around come the beginning of next season. But even if Jordan Stahl steps up to that role, they'll still need someone on the second line. Teravainen can play on the wing, or he spent a little bit of time at center last year. But he did when he was in Chicago. Like It wasn't a total failure of a season in terms of numbers. Like I talked about how it was all warm and fuzzy about him developing. 
but his actual production was reasonable. It was respectable. Uh, he generally slotted in beneath the skill guys on the Blackhawks, but still above the role players, the guys who you really expect to be firmly entrenched on a team's bottom six. So at least he was inhabiting that space between as opposed to that bottom six space itself. Uh, he puts up respectable numbers, like I said, for a third liner for somebody who got, saw the ice time he did and had positive effects on his line mates, depending on who he played with. I think that might be a little redundant. He had positive effects on his line mates, period. So I'm excited to see what Teravining can do in Carolina. I still don't know that he's going to get drafted as highly as he did last year when everybody thought he was going to get to ride shotgun with Taves or Kane. But he might be a good late-round snag, although Carolina always seems to be hard up for goals. Yeah, well, actually, an interesting question. I guess probably you won't be able to answer on the spot. Ian's asking in the chat, why does Carolina always have a bizarrely low shooting percentage? And maybe it's just because Jeff Skinner is throwing shots on net from everywhere on the ice. Is that it? Could be part of it. (laughs) I don't know. This seems to be part of the Bill Peters coaching era in Carolina. Lousy shooting percentage, lousy save percentage, but their possession numbers are still pretty good. So it's like some things are looking really good for the team, but when you look at how it actually translates to the end of the game score sheet, uh, it doesn't look so good, or it hasn't looked so good. You know, there's no big scoring happening in Carolina. Two awful goalies last season. Uh, So I don't know when things turn around for Carolina, but I feel like it's coming. Something's got to click at some point, or Bill Peters has just figured out how to game the system to make us all think that he knows what he's doing when, in fact, he doesn't. Well, so I guess the the real question is, come your fantasy draft day, is there any Carolina forward you would draft? Like, would you draft Toivo Teravainen? Like, do you think he can get you the 50, 55 points that makes him fantasy relevant? And if not him, like, aside from Justin Falk, like, for sure, he's great. He's probably going to get you 40 to 50 points if he could play the full season, take a lot of shots. He's for sure, like, a fantasy, almost elite defenseman, depending on how you want to categorize those guys. Aside from Falk... Is like who's the next guy you would draft? Is it Elias Lindholm, who always seemed, you know, he's the kind of guy who always seemed week to week. Like maybe I should pick him up. He seems to be doing okay. But then when you look at his final numbers, he has like 30, 40 points. Like he doesn't really look that good. Jeff Skinner had really great stretches, and you know, if you're in a league that counts shots on goal, like I said, he seems to take a lot of shots. Like who would you take? Oh, and you have like Victor Rask, who had a good run. Like who's the Carolina forward that you'd be interested in? And is Tara Vinen someone you would even draft in like with your last pick? This is a situation where I would go for the guy who I think has the highest upside, might be the hottest commodity at some point during the year, the guy that I have the least chance of getting a couple weeks or a couple months after the draft happens, and in my mind that is Toivo Teravainen. He'd be the Hmm. second guy on the Hurricanes that I take. Some teams, maybe if you're deep in defense, somebody might want to take a look at Noah Hannafin on the blue line. We know Falk is going to be the number one guy. He had that weird injury den last year. Still, I don't know. Has he been given a full 100% bill of health at this point? Is he in or out of the World Cup? Elon, I don't know if you can look that up while I'm talking. But Hannafin might be somebody that people might consider. Elias Lindholm would probably be my next choice after Tara Vinen, But it's really close. I feel like wow. you've got... Between Teravainen, Lindholm, Rask, and Skinner, you've got four guys who are probably, if they're not drafted, going to be added and dropped all year long. 
have some upside that they can provide, but a lot of them we've watched for a couple years and they haven't quite hit it yet. <laughs> so a couple interesting or notably absent names from your list. First of all, Jordan Stahl. The Jordan Stahl was like the hottest guy in fantasy, but you totally called it that it wasn't going to last and you were right and he slowed down at the end of the year. I'm not, I'm not throwing shade here. I'm just saying it's an interesting name to be absent. But even maybe more notably absent is the recently signed uh, goaltender for the Carolina Hurricanes because surprisingly, Cam Ward was going to go and become an unrestricted free agent but Carolina re-signed him for a couple of years. And a lot, it was really fun actually watching Twitter and even our Kevin Carlson patron-only Facebook group blow up with people just talking about how bad of a move it was for Carolina to s- sign Cam Ward. In fact, also even on Dauber Hockey, like in the Ramblings article for that day, which was written by Dauber himself, I'm going to give you a quote here. Not only will Ward perform worse than Lack, as he proved last year, but he will make Lack perform worse as he did last year. And then he like uh, links to a tweet where he shows some stats that not only was Cam Ward not good, but the fact that he was around made their other goalie, Eddie Lack, someone who we thought going into the year had a lot of promise after having really good numbers with Vancouver, but I guess maybe the stress of having Cam Ward around ended up making, like, if you look here, Eddie Lack from December 26th to March 26th, he had a 921 save percentage, even though he had only like a 901 save percentage on the year overall, and Dauber says what happened before and after that, Ward gobbled up his starts and disrupted the flow. So they sign Cam Ward, they make it so that Eddie Lack will have to fight again and probably not get starts, and Cam Ward is a guy who, if you look at his numbers, he's been a below-average NHL goalie for so long, and I mean, here, I'm trying to, I should be more unbiased, I guess, but you just look at these numbers, 909 last year, 910 the year before, 898 the year before, you have to go back so many years to find a decent season, but yet, they re-sign him, and (laughs) yeah, I'm not surprised that you didn't say that you would want to draft Cam Ward going into next season. Yeah. Is there a question? (laughs) It's not a question. What do you think about I don't know. Like, do you think that there's any reason to think he'll be better? Like, I know your answer, but just for the people listening, they re-signed him. They probably are going to go with a tandem again of him and Lack unless they get another goalie. Like, on one hand, you say that Carolina looks good and something's going to click at some point, but they need to have a goalie. But if it does click, someone's going to benefit. There's going to be a goalie that's going to have to get wins. So, like, what do you do if you're drafting goalies and there's these Carolina goalies available? Leave them for late, I think, is what you want to do. And I apologize, Elon, you just caught me off guard ending with a period instead of a question mark because you gave me a lot of good food for thought in that lead-up and rundown of the Carolina goaltending situation as it is and Dauber's point about how Lack succeeds when he can get in a rhythm. I'd love to see some more research and data on that. If goalies can play better... If they're playing regularly, we've seen some successful tandems getting, you know, going back and forth between goalies before. And we've seen lack, I, like, I think there were other stretches where he did see steady time and he fell on his face a bit too. Uh, but I am a bit of a believer in somebody who is born to be a number one goalie or bred to be a number one goalie. We saw what he could do in Vancouver with that responsibility, getting all those games in. I think there might be something to it. I just can't definitively say uh, that the numbers show this or that. So, And I feel like that's my role, but I'm going to let you know my hunch is that it makes sense. Uh, I don't know what Carolina is going to do, though, if they keep bouncing between them. If you actually look at last year and you make each goalie a mystery, I bet I could convince you into making Ward your number one guy next year. Ward beat Eddie Lack in just about every goalie metric last year, except for low danger save percentage, 
which is like not something for Lack to be gloating about. That's not a big deal to do better at, although it is sad how poor Cam Ward was in that category. Over the last three years, both goalies have very little, very, excuse me, over the last three years, both goalies have very little to be proud of. Amongst their cohort of goalies who have played similar minutes over the last three years, they rank 27th and 30th out of 31 goalies in even strength save percentage. And again, this just comes back to me thinking that, well, I think Ward is this bad, and I've gone on about that, I swear, since the inception of keeping Carlson. I don't Mm. think Lack is this bad, though, and I think that click that is bound to happen in Carolina at some point, or at least I've been fooled into thinking is bound to happen in Carolina at some point, is going to be the difference for Eddie Lack uh, being able to pick up some wins. I feel like, at least with Ward being signed to a new contract, it's only two years. And in another situation, you might say, okay... So the starter gets another two years. We were thinking this with Bishop before and Vasilevsky. Okay, two more years. That's enough time for the other guy to slowly creep up and start stealing starts and and getting that responsibility. And then in the final year of Ward's contract, he's just in a support role, essentially coming in if like gets injured or to back up, you know, essentially shifting from maybe a 1A or 1B role to a number two role in that second year. So at least there's like a reasonable timeline to guess at with Ward's contract, uh, the Canes can't win with Cam Ward in net for a sustained period of time. Cam Ward can turn in one or two big performances. It's not going to happen on a regular basis. Lack has done it in the past. I think there's still hope that he can in the future. Well, like uh, Dauber said in that tweet, he had a 921 save percentage for that stretch when Cam Ward wasn't uh, stealing starts from him. So we'll see what he can do. Uh, Ian is saying he would take Lack. Like, are you like? Let's say if you're waiting for your third goalie and you're late in the draft, would you take a Carolina goalie? And if so, which one? If you just had to take one for fantasy purposes for next year, that's so hard. It, it, my question is: if your first two goalies are save percentage wizards, uh, then you can probably handle whatever Lack might do to your save percentage. If they are average save percentage, and Lack could be the difference between you winning that category and losing that category on a weekly basis, I'd be a little more concerned, although you can always grab him and stash him on your bench. I think he could be a low pick in drafts, uh, but there is, there's upside. I think there's upside, and that's, that's the risk you take with a guy who plays on a team that has a forever low shooting percentage and a forever low save percentage. Just hope that turns around if you do go with Lack. Yeah, I think with Cam Ward, you know what you're going to get. You're going to get someone who's going to blow up your save percentage. So I wouldn't Agreed. go for him. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to some other news that happened. This is so exciting, Brian. Like, we haven't had to even go in. We still have all this stuff prepared from last week of players who had disappointing seasons. And if we think they're going to bounce back, we'll get to it eventually. I'm sure at some point in the summer, there'll be a lull. But there's a lot of interesting news to discuss. Let's go to Arizona, where they traded for and then signed Alex Goligoski to a big contract. And that's, like, pretty exciting news for a guy who, you know, has been fantasy relevant. Like, I think that he disappointed a lot of people because a couple years ago we thought he was going to be the number one power play defenseman on this amazing Dallas team with Ben and Sagan, and we thought that Alex Goligoski was going to be like a 45, 50-point defenseman. And then, of course, out of nowhere, John Klingberg arrived, took that role, Goligoski, 36 points two years ago, 37 points last year. 37 points, you might say, ah, that's not that great. But you know what? 37 points is 37 points for a defenseman. That's definitely fantasy relevant. Plus, he got a lot of blocks, so he was pretty valuable there. Now he goes to Arizona. 
I guess a similar situation in terms of he's behind Oliver Ekman Larson. There's no chance he's going to usurp Ekman Larson in terms of like a top power play defenseman. But at the same time, I guess like he's going to be the second most valuable guy. And I'm curious to know what you think in terms of is he. Can we look at him as like a guy who could get 40 points as a second defenseman in Arizona? This is kind of like a team that's not known for scoring a lot, but, you know, an up-and-coming team. They have all these young guys who we hope are going to get better. You know, Max Domi and Ryder and, you know, I could go down the list. Like a lot of guys who we think should be able to get better. Alex Goligoski, I guess I just want to know your take. Is this good for him? Is this bad for him? Or does he kind of just stay the same as he was before in terms of fantasy value? I'm going to say that it stays the same, which is not a bad thing. Alex Goligoski... I feel like is one of the more underrated fantasy contributors. He did go stretches when he was initially usurped by Klingberg and last season where he wasn't able to do quite as much. But if you adjust your expectations from the Goligoski who was the power play quarterback in Dallas for a while, you know, could be counted on for 45 points or so. If you adjust your expectations to a guy who can get 35 or 40 with a little bit of power play time, uh, I think you'll be pretty happy with him. For all the consideration that Goligoski is so passe uh, as a scorer, if you look at the last three years, uh, he's been good enough on average to still hang with the top 15 defensemen in the league uh, by points per 60 minutes. He's also up there in shots and, uh, shots per 60 minutes and shot attempts per 60 minutes. So he's doing pretty well for himself, even though Klingberg came in and, well, took over. A key thing to consider is that in Dallas, as Klingberg emerged, of course, Goligowski's power play production fell off completely from 15 points, and he had just 8 points with the man advantage, just 5 points with the man advantage in his most recent season. But I imagine that Goligowski does get to see time on a unit in Arizona. I feel like Arizona is going to put four forwards on that power play, but it's not a sure thing at all, especially, well, it depends on who the personnel can possibly be, who those four forwards could be. Maybe Goligoski would be a better option. But even if he doesn't see a ton of power play time, I still think he'll be on the second unit. And I think he can stay close to the numbers he put up in Dallas because he didn't rely heavily on power play production there either. I'd be really interested to see how the Coyotes pitched to him. You know, they traded for his rights. He went to Arizona or they went to him one way or the other. And I feel like they made a really compelling case. And I imagine if he liked it so much, he must have had some kind of offensive role at the end of the day. Uh, So that's what I'm most interested to see. They clearly have a very concrete plan for him. And they've adjusted their front office this offseason in a really interesting way. So to see where this goes from here, I mean, five years is a long time. But over the next year or two, I think you can probably keep him about even with where you had him over the last couple. Okay, so around 35 to 40 points. The thing is, I guess the counter-argument with Dallas, they were always going four forwards on that top power play. But Arizona didn't do that last year, right? Like, it was Michael Stone uh, had his share of power play time. And, you know, for most of the season, he was with Oliver ekman Larson on the top power play. Though also, even if uh, Goligoski were to go to the second power play, it's not like such a clear-cut, you know, there's... Ben and Sagan on one and then Scrubs on the other. And no offense to these like second power play Dallas guys. But you know, if you look at uh, Arizona, at least from last year, you look at their power play at the end of the year, they had like Shane Doan, Tangay, and Vermette on one and Hansel, Duclair, and Domi on the other. Like you could almost like say it's a tr- it's not that much of a difference between the first power play and the second power play. And you know, and Michael Stone, by the way, as the second defenseman on Arizona had 
36 points in 75 games, which was great. I assume, by the way, speaking of Michael Stone, this can't be good for Michael Stone, a guy who was a solid guy to draft late because you knew he'd be able to get 35, 40 points as a second guy and also a guy who was pretty good for blocks. I imagine we're not too optimistic about him now that Goligoski steps into that number two D role. Yeah, yeah. Downgrade your point scoring expectations for Michael Stone. He'll probably see some... He'll probably see less ice time, and maybe he'll still be able to put up, you know, about as many blocks as he was before, because uh, I imagine his ice time will primarily decrease on the power play, but it could also decrease at even strength, come to think of it. So Michael Stone uh, definitely takes a hit as a result of this. At least I assume, again, I feel like Arizona has a really interesting plan worked out, and I'd just like to see how they start the season and who they start it with, with talks of, you know, guys who have been around there forever, like Martin Hansel being considered on the market. Yeah, Hansel. Ugh. Don't even get me started with Hansel, the guy who I always like, and then pick him up and he sucks and as soon as I drop him he's amazing we'll we'll talk about him if and if and when he moves if not just I don't want to talk about him <laughs> Michael Stone uh Bobby's pointing out as a restricted free agent maybe he'll get traded so we'll see but I would say going to next season I think you could be pretty confident in Goligoski getting around 35 to 40 points with an okay number of blocks so that's a decent late round pick Michael Stone unless he gets traded then we'll reassess I would say you could probably leave him as a free agent for now Okay, that's Arizona. Let's move on to some more defensemen. There's Keith Yandel, who who hasn't signed exactly, but his rights were traded to Florida. So let's just assume he will get signed. It seems that, by the way, what is this thing? Maybe, Brian, just fill me in as a guy who knows a lot about hockey. These teams that trade the rights of a player when they're going to become an unrestricted free agent... Like, what's the deal? Like, why do they do that? Why can't they just wait until they become an unrestricted free agent and then sign them? It's like the rights to negotiate? Like, they can't just text them? I don't know. Just give me the quick... Like, how likely is it that Yandel's going to sign with Florida? Like, does this mean anything? It seems like yes. It seems like when these rights get traded, the player always signs. So they can't just text him, as a matter of fact, because that would be tampering. You're not allowed to negotiate with a player who's not... Uh, who you don't have the rights to negotiate with. So they're getting an exclusive window within which they can negotiate a contract with this player before other teams can. I can see how impressed you are by that, Elon. But apparently, you're saying a lot of teams are making these trades and they're signing these guys. Now, are agents whispering around with GMs saying, yeah, you know, it might work. If you made a play, it could work. Maybe. Maybe there's some stuff going on behind the scenes that we're not seeing. But it's Tampering! It's tampering! I think it's a good way. Elon is is very angrily raising his finger in the air, um, admonishing all the tamperers, by the way, while he says that. But it, I think, if anything, you know, let's say Goligoski wasn't expecting it. It's like, hey, somebody wants me, and somebody's willing to, to negotiate. If they want me, if they've got a plan, and they're willing to pitch it to me right off the bat, uh, I'm game. Like, I, I think it's a good way to win someone's favor early, to say... Look, we're willing to give something up for you. And I feel like if you went into the human psychology part of this, and I don't know how true this is, this is just me uh, spitballing, but somebody who feels like you've given something up for them might feel as though they might owe you a little something, uh, and maybe they'll feel a little more obliged sure. in uh, in signing with you. Okay, well, that's Brian, pretty far-fetched, but... Yep. You're trying to get some value out of your undergrad degree. That's understandable. But oh okay, <laughs> let's talk about Keith Yandel. Uh, two years ago, he was amazing. 53 points in 82 games with Phoenix. He was great, actually, 
for a while with Phoenix. Like, he even at some point had 59 points back in 2010-2011. So he's was, like, a really reliable offensive defenseman on Phoenix. He gets traded to the Rangers, and then all of a sudden his production, like, went down, I guess not completely, right? 47 points last year in 82 games. I feel like he was, like, under the radar, really valuable. Now that I... I was sure I was going to look right now at the stats and see that he had, like, 40 points. But, no, 47 points. That's amazing. So people talking about how the Rangers misused him, like, what did you expect from him? Another 60-point season? But anyway, we've seen him have a 60-point season at one point with Phoenix. He was a 47-point guy last year. If he were to sign with Florida, a team with, like, a really strong top power play, right? With, like, Barkov and Huberdo and Yager and all these guys. Like, I assume this is better for Keith Yandel? Like, if he signs with Florida, what do you think his upside is? Are we talking, like, 50-plus points? So a couple factors come into play here. And before I get to them, I, I want to mention Yandel was awesome. Or, like, through most of, was awesome, is awesome. If you look at any measure of offense from the blue line over the last several years, Yandel's name is up there. Uh, even strength scoring, power play scoring, shots, points, everything. He's there. Uh, he was a key cog in Arizona. Of course, they didn't need him so much with Ekman Larson around. And they got an incredible return in retrospect, if he was going to leave anyway, say, they got Anthony Duclair and I think probably a pick or two in that deal as well. And in New York, he was so much maligned for the first little while. I had him on my team. I was frustrated with him, but he really came on in the second half of the season and certainly lived up, started living up to his name once they started giving him opportunities. Remember, Elon, they were playing Dan Boyle on the first unit for a while, and Ryan McDonough and Dan Girardi. It's like anyone but Yandel <laughs> for a while. I'm not sure what Vigneault's beef was with Yandel at the time, but if he does end up in Carol, excuse me, if he does end up in Florida, my question is, well, where's his power play time going to be divided between guys like Campbell and Ekblad? My so guess Campbell, is Camp. Oh, sorry. May I just... The word is Campbell's going to be on the outs. So maybe we could just simplify this. Let's assume Campbell's gone and Ekblad and him share power play time. I could see them going with two... They're another team that has often had two defensemen on the power play. So I could see just Campbell and Ek... I mean, Yandel and Ekblad uh, manning that top power play. Yeah, so Campbell... It's funny. When Yandel's rights were traded, I saw a tweet immediately that said from one beat writer who I trust that the Panthers were still going to try and hold on to Campbell. That's the plan. And then like a few hours later, I saw another beat writer say, well, this probably means that Campbell's gone. Also someone who I trust. And I don't know if the situation evolved very quickly over those few hours or if they have different information. So I'm not ready to really buy into either camp yet, although it does seem unlikely unless Brian Campbell's willing to take a pretty big cat pit uh, that Campbell will stick around. Ekblad will be there. So I feel like power play time is going to be divided between Ekblad and Yandel, if Yandel does sign. And Elon, if you'll bear with me for just a minute, I am trying to pull up the way in which defensive minutes on the power play were split up last season in Florida. And you've borne with me enough, bared with me enough. So it was Campbell getting about the same as Ekblad and then Kulikov being a distant third. And one thing that we rooted a lot last season was that there was no power play quarterback that really emerged in Florida. There were so many points to be had with the talent up front, and they had two units worth of talent. They should have been making it happen and getting a lot of power play production. 
But if you look at those three guys, those three defensemen with the most power play time on the team, they ended up with a combined 20 points, which is less than some of the elite scores do all by themselves, and really not a whole lot more than your average power play quarterback gets all by himself. So I hope that Yandel, if he does end up in Florida, can come in, really solidify one of those Florida power plays, and the effect, of course, will be felt by the forwards too, which is why I'm hopeful that that's going to be the case. I think it's a great situation for him. He's coming in. If he does come in, I have to keep in mind this is hypothetical. There's so much talent up front there that it won't be too hard, I don't think, for him to start cashing in on points. I could see him still splitting time with Aaron Eckblad for what it's worth. Last year, the power play point race in Florida went eight for Brian Campbell, seven for Aaron Eckblad. Oh, not that, not that much. Yeah, so maybe you could expect, depending on how much, I feel like Yandel could get easily 12, 15 in the right circumstances, and maybe Ekblad, if he plays the same amount of time, could get, I don't know, 10 or more if he takes a big step forward. I think it's, uh, one day he's expected to take that big step forward, or it could be like a Victor Hedman situation where his even strength play is elite, and he does really well as an all-around player, but he's never totally given the reins to produce or or is able to fulfill uh, that role of being that huge power play producer. Yeah, well, Aaron Ekblad, we have to remember, is 20 years old. So he's already had two seasons, 39 points two seasons ago, then 36 points this past season, which maybe you could say was disappointing. Maybe we thought he would like take a step forward to like 45 points or so. But I guess... Aaron Ekblad, I, I wouldn't lose hope on him, but at least for next year, Keith Yandel, if he signs, I would expect more, and I would want him above Aaron Ekblad, I think. I, do you agree with that? If you had to pick one of them and Yandel's on Florida? If I'm looking for straight-up points, Ekblad is like the cooler hipper pick, but I would go with Yandel. Okay. All right. So uh, let's move on then to some more signings. We talked about Golgowski. Vatten and Yandel, or oh, Yandel hasn't signed yet. Actually, another one of these trading the rights. This is a guy, Brian, you're going to have to help me with because I'm going to have to admit I didn't know much about this guy. But another one of these trading the rights. Uh, so Nashville traded the rights of Jimmy Vesey to Buffalo. And now Buffalo has the rights to negotiate with Jimmy Vesey before he'll eventually become a free agent. And for those of you listening who don't follow prospects, I'm sure you're thinking, who the heck is Jimmy Vesey? So this is a guy who won the Hobie Baker Award last year as the USA's top college player, and he had 104 points in 70 games for Harvard, and he's apparently this guy who has a lot of upside, and if he were to sign with Buffalo, and let's just go with our assumption that trading the rights means he's going to sign with the guy, I guess, who knows, I'm sure each situation is different, but I read an article... Uh, in some Buffalo, you know, newspaper or something saying how Vesey is friends with Eichel. And if he were to sign, he'd probably play on a line with Eichel and Reinhardt. So this is a guy who might be in the top six on Buffalo next year. So if he signs with Buffalo, Brian, playing with a guy like Jack Eichel and another guy like Sam Reinhardt, both of whom we expect, and I think we are rightfully expecting to improve next year. I'm And this guy, Vesey, is supposed to be good. Like, what do you do with this information? Like, last year you had guys like... Panarin come in who did amazing and we didn't know who he was and then we had other guys who came in I'm sure we can't even remember now what their names are that we thought maybe would do good jumping onto their team's top six right out of college not that Panarin came out of college what am I saying Brian who's Jimmy Vesey and are we excited about him would you draft him if he signed with Buffalo well first off I would like an entire social web drawn of all NHLers showing who is friends with who so I know (laughs) where they're going to play and who they like to hang out with 
I like I feel <laughs> they're friends. I don't Okay, know, no, no. Whatever. It was more like, than okay, they were friends. Great. I think they play I think they played together. I think that's what it was. Well, Jack Eichel played at Boston University and Jimmy Vesey played at Harvard. Now, they were both born in Massachusetts, although I have no idea how close North Chelmsford is to Boston. Maybe they played together. Oh, on Team USA's bronze medal team at last year's World Championships. That's where they played And they together. became best friends in the process. Okay, enough <laughs> of this friend chit-chat. Let's get to what we know about college players coming into the NHL. So if you take the long view and you see, uh, like, my first thought is, okay, what players out of college have recently come into the NHL and what have they done, uh, especially from their this particular division, which is the ECAC. I'm not sure if anybody calls it the ECAC. It's actually a meaningless <laughs> acronym. It used to stand for something, but it actually doesn't stand for that thing anymore, but they wanted to keep the acronym for name recognition. Anyway... Little uh, little college hockey tidbit for you there. If we look at players who've come out of that conference, it's a conference in college hockey, uh, who have made noise in the NHL, you're looking at names like Brandon Peary, Mark Arcabello, and then like you're really already just trying very hard, grasping with Jesse Winchester, David Jones, Riley Nash. They're like the only recognizable names of the past decade who've come out of the conference that Jimmy Vesey played in in college and made an impact in the NHL. Uh, so for that reason, well, I don't know. It's not fair to say because all these guys came before. This is what's going to happen because at the same time, if you look at guys who won the Hobie Baker Award, Jimmy Vesey won the most recent one. Before him, it was Jack Eichel. Before him, it was Johnny Gaudreau. So, you know, you've got uh, some two really good precedents there. But then... Like, for the 15 years prior, it was, like, nobody. It was, like, Chris Drury in 1998 was the last Hobie Baker winner to come in and, and have a real offensive impact in the NHL, or really any impact in the NHL. You see Ryan Miller in there, uh, Matt Carl. But aside from that, it's not a list of players who have gone on to big things in the big leagues. So for that reason... I would maybe temper your expectations on Vesey a little bit, although the recent precedents are there with Gojo and Eichel, and maybe college hockey is figuring out how to turn things around. The U.S. national team development program has gotten a lot stronger in recent years, so perhaps I should throw all that old stuff out the window. In fact, I actually lean towards throwing all that old stuff out the window, but anybody who's hoping for like a huge Eichel-like breakout year for Vesey, I'm not sure he'll reach quite Eichel Heights in his first season. I think 50 points would be a successful season for him. I, I wouldn't be willing to say uh, that I have a, a high degree of confidence that he's going to get more than 50 points. I'd probably put him in the 40 to 50 range, although if he signs in Buffalo and has those line mates, he's going to get a, his fair share of help. So that would obviously go a long way to boosting his value. Yeah, I think he's the kind of guy, if he signs with Buffalo, if we're seeing as your draft is approaching that he's going to be playing in the top six and getting power play time, he's the kind of guy that you keep your eye on to draft late in the draft. You're obviously not going to pick him over a sure shot, like 50, 60 point guy. But near the end of the draft, that's where you take your chances. And maybe if you're deciding between him and one of these Carolina guys, maybe like an Elias Lindholm, who we sort of have already seen, like he also has some upside. But for me, I maybe I would get take the more exciting guy in Jimmy Vesey. And at the end of the day, you could always just drop him and pick up someone Elias Lindholm-like, probably. So, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. But it's always exciting when you see someone that's going to come in that, especially now if 
you mentioned that the last two Hopi Baker winners are Eichel and Godro. I mean, come on. But then again, those guys were also drafted highly as opposed to Jimmy Vesey. So we'll see. But there's a guy to keep your eye on. We mentioned last year Panarin early on in the summer. And then obviously by the end, he won the Calder Trophy. That's the big news, by the way, from today. I don't know if you mentioned that on the show, but he, he beat out Connor McDavid, believe it or not. Elon, you mentioned them not being drafted highly, and you're right. Eichel, of course, was second overall last season. Johnny Goodrow was drafted, however, in the fourth round uh, in 2011. You know, 104th overall, Jimmy Vesey taken in the third round. 66th overall the following year. So I don't know that, you know, Goodrow flew under the radar, and I think in large part because, well, coming out of college and his height, he's listed at 5'9", 157. Uh, Vessi is a bigger frame, 6'1", 195, which probably might have been the difference between the 40 picks that, uh, that difference that existed between where he was taken and Godreau was taken. Okay, yeah. So I apologize about Johnny Godreau, but obviously... Now he's like one of the, maybe the top 10, 20 guys. We'll maybe talk about him in the summer series. Like we, I think we talked about him at some point recently. Like he had such an amazing season last year. So hopefully Jimmy Vesey could even slightly approach that. Okay, Brad, let's go into a bit of a lightning round. I have a few other things I wanted to talk about that have happened. So we've got, first of all, Pavel Datsyuk is leaving the Red Wings. I don't know really what the fantasy impact is. Like, there's some guys on Detroit who might benefit. We'll have to kind of wait and see what happens there. It's kind of a bummer, obviously, if you're in a keeper league and you have Datsuk, you have to scramble. It reminds me a lot of what happened with Kovalchuk a few years ago, which happened to you, I believe, Brian. You were in a keeper league and you lost Kovalchuk. But do you have any uh, advice or anything to say to those Datsuk owners? Hopefully you sort of saw it coming, or at least, you know, since he was already getting pretty old, you weren't vesting too much in him already. Yeah, it's a little different. Anybody in a keeper league depending heavily on Datsuk for the next, like, seven years, was making a huge mistake. At the time, Kovalchuk was essentially in his prime, and he just up and left. Um, so I'm not going to say that they are similar, because I still feel the hurt from that situation. But I do apologize to anybody who lost Datsuk. The good news is, eh, he wasn't going to be around for too long anyway. Yeah, and so, and you know, we'll keep our eye... As the preseason approaches, we'll keep our eye on who's going to be in the top six on Detroit. Maybe someone's going to benefit from this. You know, there are some guys on Detroit like Abdulkader who are in the top six and still don't really benefit. Uh, Ryan's mentioning Larkin. Like, I'm pretty sure Larkin was already guaranteed to be in the top six playing with good line mates. If anything, maybe this hurts Larkin because he loses a good potential line mate in Pavel Datsyuk. But okay, so we'll get into that later. Larkin was the guy that first popped to mind for me. This is a good chance for him to step up and take on a bigger role. Maybe he benefited from having Datsuk around occasionally, uh, but now he's going to have to do it by himself, and he's going to be given the reins uh, to do it with. I don't know how this is all going to affect, like Nyquist and Tatar coming off disappointing seasons, all the Red Wings pretty much coming off disappointing seasons. I'm interested to keep an eye on them. They're going to be a team that will probably have a couple chats about early on in 2016-17. Okay, well, I guess the people who download the episode will be able to hear what Brian said because uh, his internet was very choppy and we missed everything here for the live show, but I'm sure it was very interesting and a good take on Pavel Tatsyuk. Uh, we also have here Bobby suggesting in the chat that Riley Sheehan may be someone to watch. So, you know, there might be some names of people that you can keep track of on Detroit that might get a chance in the top six and getting some power play time. Another 
kind of fantasy relevant news. Uh, the Jets, I'm surprised about this. They've re-signed Hutchinson, Michael Hutchinson, their, uh, I guess, third goalie, I would have assumed. Uh, you know, he's the guy who traded time with Pavlik before Hellebuck came in when Pavlik got injured and Hellebuck got all the starts, basically. Hutchinson always blew it whenever he got a chance while Hellebuck was there. But then, of course, when Pavlik came back, Hellebuck went back down. Going into next year, does this mean anything? If the Jets have signed Hutchinson for two years... Is that just, hopefully that doesn't mean that they're going to ride Pavlik and Hutchinson again. Like, we have to have Hellebuck as a starting goalie on Winnipeg next year, right? I mean, if you look at their numbers from last year, it's it's almost laughable, like, how different they were. Like, just their save percentages. You have, Connor Hellebuck had a 918 save percentage in his 26 games, and then you have Hutchinson was a 907 and Pavlik was a 904. So, like, do you know, have any insight into what the Jets are doing signing Hutchinson here? Is this just the precipice for them to trade Pavlik and have Hutchinson as their number two who barely plays? I'd like to pretend I know a thing or two about how the Jets are handling their goaltending situation. Uh, I won't pretend. I have no idea what the plan is. Signing Hutchinson, I do know like it's a very affordable contract, so they're certainly not getting themselves into any big trouble by doing it. Uh, I, but I wish I could tell you the significance of it. I have no idea. Okay, well, so something to keep track of. I know Cameron, one of our patrons and a writer for Dauber Hockey, he is banking heavily on Hellebuck being a goalie of his in his Dynasty League for years to come. I'm sure he'll be heartbroken if it turns out that he goes in the minors again, but how could they? So another thing to watch, maybe Pavlik will go somewhere, but who would trade? Like, Pavlik is like a Cam Ward, right? A guy who somehow sticks around forever, even though his numbers are just so bad year after year. Like, what team is going to go for him? And, like, he's not a guy I would draft no matter what team he goes on. (laughs) Like, unless he's like becomes the starting goalie for Chicago or Pittsburgh or something, and even then I'd be concerned. Yeah, I uh, sorry, I my answer didn't have a lot of content in it. I'm realizing it's not good for me to just say I don't know. I'm mad at Winnipeg. Hellebuck should be the starter. I feel like that's known uh, to be my opinion, but just to reiterate, Hellebuck should be the starter. There's no reason for the Jets to carry three goalies. Ridiculous. Okay, and then I want to go to our mailbag, the Keeping Carlson mailbag right now. I actually didn't mention, I meant to, when we were talking about Michael Stone on Arizona, there was actually a tweet from, oh no, I had it all ready to talk about and then I didn't. All right, well, oh yeah, here it is, uh, when Arizona signed uh, Goligoski, and then we had a tweet from Chris at CNOVA26 asked, will Goligoski signing with Arizona decrease the value of Michael, Mark Stone? Oh, Mark Stone, he means Michael Stone. Marksman's on Ottawa. He'll be fine. Anyways, we answered that. The answer was yes. It will decrease his value, most likely. Another tweet we got from Barry Baker at Keeping Carlson. In your next podcast, could you briefly talk about Marco Dano and his chances of a big breakthrough next year? Cheers! And then a happy face and a thumbs up. How could we not answer such a pleasant tweet? So, Marco Dano, Brian, this is a guy who, last year, going into the season, we were so excited about Marco Dano. I know you were like, you know, we were debating who do you want more Marco Dano or Artemi Panarin because we thought maybe Dano would be the guy getting the top six role playing with Patrick Kane or someone on Chicago obviously that didn't work out Dano was sent to the minors and then when he did get called up we got excited again we thought maybe he would get that spot on the top line with Hosa and Taves that didn't happen he played like in a bottom six role all year then he ended up getting traded to Winnipeg at the end of the year and how did he do there uh you know not great overall he had 
10 points in 34 games on the season overall. Like, nothing special on Winnipeg. Again, he didn't get a big role on the team. There were a couple injuries near the end of the year, so he had a brief chance playing with okay players like Drew Stafford or, you know. But now looking into next year, if I look at Winnipeg's depth chart, you know, we've got Little or Shifley as the centers on lines one and two, Wheeler and Ehlers, you know, probably the rest of the first line. Then you have, like, Matthew Perot and then that other center. And then maybe... Marco Dano, but then we also have Lane that they're probably going to be drafting. Patrick Lane, who a lot of people think is going to just right away be able to jump to the NHL. Then you still have Drew Stafford. So I still don't see a guaranteed top six role for Marco Dano. So I wouldn't be too excited about him. I don't think I'm going to be drafting him. But if you're in like a deep keeper, like prospects league, you know, he did show two years ago that he could do something on Columbus. But Brian, like you, you're the one who had the Dano love going into last year. Do you still have some Dano love going into this year? Yeah, Tara Vinen was also in that conversation with Dano at the start of last season, and I, I, I have like I feel like I decided to defer my love for Dano from last year when we saw him get demoted and that things just weren't going to work out in Chicago as we hoped they would. It's definitely decreased a little bit. I'm not as excited about it as I was before. You know, it was a really great opportunity for someone who showed just a little bit of promise for me to zero in on him and say, oh yeah, that little bit is going to turn into a lot. Now that's turned into a, a little bit of a bigger journey. It's uh, He's less of a dark horse than he was before. At the same time, I still think he could have an impact for Winnipeg this season. If you look at what he did in the AHL, it was pretty impressive. He had 23 points in 34 games with Rockford, managed just eight points in his 21 games with Winnipeg. Elon, I'm sorry if you already mentioned that. Uh, You know, he just never got the shot we hoped he'd get uh, in the NHL last season. And for that reason, we still don't know what kind of player he is. If you look at his game over the last 20 games of the year that he did play as a Winnipeg Jet, he was really on the cusp of either being a top six guy or a top nine guy, sort of falling right in between. So he's got a little bit of work to do uh, to be able to really entrench himself in that top six. I feel like, you know, if you look at a guy like Drew Stafford and think that he should be in the top six, that's the sort of guy that Dano is trying to push out or surpass on the Winnipeg depth chart. Uh, So in short, I don't, you know, I really liked what I saw from him in Columbus. He had a good season last year in the AHL when he was down there. He played okay when he came back up to the NHL. A lot of it's going to depend on what Winnipeg expects to see from him. And I'm hoping he'll be given a chance to at least show us if he can achieve, you know, 50, 55 points or if he might be stalled in the 40, 45 point range over the course of a full season. Yeah, I think with Marco Dano at this point, it's really like you say, it's a matter of opportunity. Like he might have the talent. We're not going to know to like put up a lot of points, but, you know, he has to play with decent players. Don't draft Marco Dano. And if you have him in your, you know, league and you're deciding if he should be a keeper, like, tweet at us again and let us know who you're deciding between because there's a lot of good players on Winnipeg right now that he'd have to jump ahead of in order to have a significant role on that team, in my opinion. Brian's sort of going a comme comsa hand gesture. There's a lot of okay middling-ish players in Winnipeg that he'd have to jump over, Drew Stafford being one of them. Okay, but like, even forgetting about Drew Stafford, I could definitely see next season being Shifley, Ehlers, and Wheeler for line one, and then, or maybe Little, and then, you know, then Little and Lane 
and Matthew Perot for line two. And there you go. Even there, Stafford's not even in that, that conversation and Dano doesn't get in the top six. That's fair. That's fair. I hadn't considered the number two pick factor. Good point. Winnipeg, it's incredible. It's incredible that they're going to get a second overall pick with a team that's pretty all right as it is. I mean, they fell pretty hard midway through last season, but they've got some good pieces and it's uh, it's a wonderful treat for any Jets fan to be able to get, you know, essentially someone who's in a tie for being worth the number one pick this year. Yeah, lots of comparisons of Lane to Alex Ovechkin, both right wingers. So, you know, we'll talk about him, I guess, maybe when he gets drafted. Maybe we can do a prospects episode later, but a lot of hype for him. And, you know, and then we haven't even mentioned, obviously, we talked about Hellebuck as a great goalie. On Winnipeg, if he gets the shot, then you have Bufflin and Truba and Tyler Myers and Tobias Enstrom. Like, this is a, on defense, so this is a very deep team. Could they be, like, a sleeper team to make a big impact next year and maybe get get into the playoffs and challenge for the Cup? Maybe I'm getting too crazy here, but if I was a gambling man, which I have been in the past, and I wanted to bet on a team with really good Stanley Cup odds, drop $20 for someone that could win me, like, three, $400 if they win... I don't know. You could be worse than Winnipeg right now. Ian, with a bold statement in the chat here saying Winnipeg finishes higher in the standings than Chicago next year. Uh, add that to the bet board. I'll take that bet. I'll still take Chicago, Ian. I, is, if, Bri- if the other Brian is here, then definitely let's get him putting that up on the board. But okay, we have definitely uh, gone long here. It's 9.30. So Brian, one last thing before we end the show. I asked for her questions and we just have a quick question that we asked from Ryan. Uh, who's going to suffer with a $73 million salary cap? Any quick takes about the fantasy impact of the salary cap that came out? Maybe you're mad at me for throwing that at you when you wanted to end the show. <laughs> no, I'm just uh, loading up general manager now. I can't say that I feel like any team's fantasy impact is going to be significantly affected by the salary cap. I've never really thought of the impact that one might have on another. Uh, I mean, like, I guess if you're hoping Brandon Saad in Columbus is going to have some people to play with, um, you're kind of in trouble because they're a cap-strapped team somehow. Uh, So, yeah, I don't know. I'm sorry, Ryan. I don't know that I have... A thorough answer. I mean, I would say the, the teams in trouble are the ones who are strapped right now. I mean, Toronto is still somehow up there, despite all the wheeling and dealing they've done, although I feel like they're savvy enough to get out of it. Uh, L.A., Pittsburgh, Columbus, Chicago, uh, these are the teams that are going to have to figure figure their stuff out to be able to continue icing competitive teams and attracting free agents. But as for the fantasy impact of the salary cap, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I can pick out a team that way. But if if you have a theory, Ryan, or anybody else has a theory on how fantasy cap could affect fantasy fortunes if uh, in different cities, then I would be all ears. Yeah, well, I guess you mentioned Brandon Saad. I guess if you look at Columbus in general, if they're up against the cap, that's not very good for the chances of, like, Sergei Bobrovsky to get a lot of wins for you if they're not going to be able to improve their offense. I don't know. But yeah, like you say, you know, at the end of the day, we're here doing fantasy. At the beginning of the season, when you do your draft, hopefully you'll know approximately what the team's roster is going to be for the year, and then at that point you draft your players. Obviously, some people are in long-term keeper leagues, and you have to make longer-term decisions. So yeah, if you have any opinions, tweet at us, at Keeping Carlson. We'd love to hear from you. And of course... 
Just let us know what you thought about this show because we are wrapping up the show right now. Brian, we are in the wrap-up phase. So I want to thank everyone for joining us live. Thank everyone for downloading the show and listening. Let us know what you think. I know we've had some feedback about these live shows. Some people like them more. Some people prefer the recorded stuff. But the nice thing about the recorded live shows is we get to interact with people and also we get to get them out very quickly without a lot of editing, which is always nice. But definitely let us know what you thought about it at Keeping Carlson. If you wanted to do us a favor, you could give us a five-star review on iTunes. I know we ask for it every week and I think it's a big deal because I think that that's a still a big way that people you know I don't use an iPhone anymore I I use uh, Android and I have a different app for looking for podcasts so maybe give us a pocket casts five-star review if that's how they do it but I think the five-star reviews on iTunes are the ones that really help us out uh, if you're interested in becoming a patron you become a patron of Keeping Carlson any amount of money that you uh, throw at us you could join our Keeping Carlson patron only Facebook group where there's a lot of stuff going on we're like drafting a new player every day for our rankings and having interesting discussions and obviously there's going to be a lot of news coming out as there already has been and we're going to be giving our hot takes and people discussing it it's a lot of fun check it out if you want to become a patron ryan okay i am done you know dauber hockey presents us we've got SeatGeek as our sponsor offer code keeping but with that let's cue the outro music in post-production and why don't you go ahead and read us the credits? All right. This episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was supported by our patrons and presented by DauberHockey.com. It was researched with help from Hockey Analysis, Hockey Reference, Corsica Hockey, Ian Fleming's Save Charts, a cool way to look at a number of goalie metrics, Mimico Hero's Hero Charts, which we've referenced before as good ways to check out how players are performing relative to their peers. And I think that's it. Yahoo Sports, Roto World, Did I Say Hockey Database, and ESPN Fantasy Hockey. Also, the article that I found that was talking about how Eichel and Vessi are friends was from the Buffalo News. So that's another credit I can throw out there. Great job as always, Brian. And until next time... Oh, wait, you say this. What do we do until next time? I think if it were up to me, you'd keep on keeping Carl Sand. Even though he didn't win the Norris Trophy. So maybe not. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye.